Here we are again with another Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today for episode 22, my guest is architect Jeff Mingay. When we talk about the next generation of golf course architects, and we do that a lot around here, and with good reason, we have to talk about Jeff Mingay. I first heard of Jeff Mingay around 2000 in some online architecture forums where he participated and that I had recently discovered. I related to him because he seemed like a fairly young guy like me who loved architecture, but also because he could hang with the quote-unquote elder scholars on just about any topic, and he had a way of minimalist frankness that cut through the bloviating and self-importance that usually accompanies discussions of golf courses. Mingay was more than just talk. He was beginning his design career around that same time working for fellow Canadian architect Rod Whitman. You can hear Rod on episode 9 of this podcast. With Whitman, he built three of Canada's best modern courses, Blackhawk, Sagebrush, and the big one, Cabot Links. Mingay opened his own design business in 2009 and found success in an unexpected place, on Vancouver Island at the Victoria Golf Club. His gorgeous renovation there of the old Arthur Vernon McCann course opened the door to restorations of numerous other McCann courses in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest, and the success of those projects has further elevated Jeff's stature in the architecture world, pushing him into redesign jobs across Canada and the northern U.S. Mingay's favorite place is in the seat of a dozer or excavator. He works by hand with small crews, doing the bulk of the shaping and feature work himself, and his courses have a natural, old, handcrafted feel. His art can also be bold, profound, and diverse, as evidenced by the spaces and shapes and forms of the Derrick Club, a course he redeveloped in Edmonton. Jeff took time out from the restoration of the historic Town and Country Club in St. Paul to talk about his expanding career and what inspires him, and also about the health of golf architecture and what the lack of original work opportunities for him and the under-50 set of designers, that is, the inability of his generation to put fresh, possibly changing architectural ideas in the ground, bodes for the future. It was a good, fun conversation, and I hope you like it. Here's me and Jeff Mingay. Looks like you're traveling quite a bit these days. Is that That's a constant, though, right? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, spring and fall are typically most busy right now. Um, you know, we're trying to do, you know, a lot of private club work, obviously. So we try to get in in the spring and out for the golf season and then back in in the fall. And, uh, you know, so we don't interrupt too much golf during during prime time. But um, the last few weeks have been crazy. I actually haven't even been home in over two weeks. <laughs> I was up in British Columbia and I'm in Minneapolis. And Is that um, hard to be away that like? That long? Uh, not really. I mean, it's something I've been doing for 20 years. So, um, did you just get of, used to it, or did you, when you got into the business, did you know that you were going to be on the road quite this much? Pretty much, I did. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do, I still do a lot of shaping myself. So, um, that's why I spend, I spend probably more time than on the construction site. Than, than most architects probably just you know being in the bulldozers and the excavators and whatnot so wanting to be involved with that and uh, knowing what it takes you know it was something I always had expected and again I sometimes when I'm home for too long I get kind of uh, stir crazy you know w- wondering if I'm doing not doing the right thing when I'm sitting at home oh you have those <laughs> yeah, yeah. stressful moments like you should be out on the road working do you have kids exactly. I do. Uh, tw- just one though. She and she's twenty one, so she's uh, long past uh, uh, needing or wanting to see her dad. You know. <laughs> oh, I, okay. So that frees you up a little bit more. Yeah, it does. At least, it, at least the uh, the guilt side isn't probably what it was ten years ago. 
Exactly. Yeah. No doubt about that. Yeah. What were you into when you were a kid? Well, golf, um, music. I'm still still a big music guy too. Yeah. Do you play? Uh, I used to. Yeah. I don't. I don't get a chance to as much as I. Uh, as much as I'd like, but, uh, you know, being away from home and whatnot, um, guitar was my thing and I'm certainly not traveling with a guitar. I usually try to take a backpack, you know, so I don't have to check any bags. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, those are, I mean, golf and music are my two, my two biggest things that probably have sustained throughout my whole life. So do you think there are like characteristics or behavioral indicators that might suggest that someone who's 15 or 14 12 years old might have a tendency to be a good architect that's an interesting question i mean it immediately makes me think of the difference between my brother and i you know my my, my younger brother's a two two and a half years younger than me and um you know he took a real liking to playing golf and became a really good player you know he's a, he's been a scratch our whole lives pretty much club champion numerous times and i was more into the artistic side of the golf course and the artistic side of the game you know the the literature and again the course architecture and and things like that my brother doesn't really take too much of an interest in that so i think some of my artistic tendencies you know relative to music and I, i i've done a lot of writing over the years i was i've always been like that so i think yeah, that artistic tendency certainly drew me to an interest in the architecture, and uh, and hopefully uh, that also translates into doing doing some good work as well. But interesting question. Yeah, is there any? You think there's any correlation to being somebody who's inclined to play music versus you know? Is it just a that's a creative mindset and it translates into being an architect, or is there anything specific about playing the guitar and noodling around on it, or something that you can take with you that? that kind of that energy and that flow, like when you're on a machine, do you get some of that kind of music jamming sensation? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I mean, first of all, I, I think that being into the architecture of the golf course is, has certainly hurt my game. It's funny. There's that famous quote from Bobby Jones, you know, he, where he said something like the more, you know, about golf architecture, the better golfer you're, uh, probably going to be able to become. I, I think it's worked in the opposite fashion for me. You know, I'm <laughs> often out on these golf courses, and I'm instead of concentrating on my own game and playing well, you know, I'm looking around too much and thinking about things other than what I should be thinking about as someone playing golf. Um, and conversely, if you use my brother as an example again, you know, he's not thinking about; he's just thinking about playing golf and trying to shoot the low score or beat his opponent. So I think having that artistic mindset can can hurt you a little bit but um there's certainly a jamming effect too i mean i'm i'm out here at town and country club in st paul minnesota right now and we're reshaping the green surrounds uh on their 13th hole and uh i'm out there shaping with the superintendent and you know i didn't draw a plan for it or anything you know we basically gave the club a concept and i'm on a bulldozer and he's on an excavator and we're tossing dirt around it's very similar to you know picking up the guitar with a drummer and trying to trying to get some synergy going and 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 work something out so yeah that's a that's an interesting uh, analogy yeah are you actually listening to music oh absolutely yeah. what are you playing it's great um today what was i listening to today i had uh i, I got yesterday i was in into i was listening to some heavy stuff like helmet and uh oh wow helmet. I, yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard that I, name in a while 
funny enough, I was just in Detroit uh, over the weekend and I saw him in concert. And I think the last time I saw him was in like 1993 or something. <laughs> Good <laughs> for know, them. They're still around. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I flipped from that. And today I had the Smiths on, uh, some Radiohead. So I'm uh, I'm all over the place when it comes to music. Towns Van Sant. So uh-huh. I can I do it all when it comes to music. But I'm always listening to music. I like having having the music on and the bulldozer. That's for sure. The Smiths were not around for that long, but they did have kind of distinct periods. Are you like an early Smiths? Some of that were Morrissey's doing that falsetto, early real moody stuff, or the the later stuff like Louder Than Bombs when it's they're just kind of throwing all kinds of stuff out there. I'm I'm more partial to the first the first three albums. Yeah, you know, me too. Queen is dead, probably maybe the best. That's kind of their sort of their uh, the pinnacle of the Smiths operation. Yeah, they really kind of hit it all, got it all in that one album. That's Cemetery Gates and There's yeah. a Light That Never Goes Out. Those are some of my favorites. There you go. Yeah. Me too. So your your brother being a, a really advanced player, do you? Does he, when you talk architecture, does he just look at you like you're, you know, he knows you're an architect, but do you guys have any common ground there? Or can you look at his game and the way he approaches it and use that somehow in the way you design golf courses or think about golf courses? Uh, I definitely, I definitely have more of an interest in watching him play uh, and, and, and sort of thinking about that relative to designing than he's, than he would have an interest in architecture. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Which I think again, it makes you a really great player. I mean, I, I think if you can put the horse blinders on, and, and you know, just concentrate on what you need to do as a golfer, you're way better off than than thinking about the architecture of a course. I, it is funny because so many people I know, like again, Bobby Jones. Uh, I've heard Jeff Ogilvy say say that. You know, Mike Clayton, another great player who's also a great architect. Uh, but I, I find I find it to be the opposite. Find it. So you probably enjoy walking golf courses more than. Oh, out absolutely. there with your clubs yeah even even when i'm working i never i never get in in carts to to even get out to the work site you know i mean right now i'm at back at the maintenance facility here at the town and country club and 13 greens in the middle of the course i'll walk out there you know i just i do i enjoy just walking and looking and you know i'm i'm always just thinking in that in that vein so to speak you may find this kind of interesting to hear, but I think I first heard your name when I kind of made the transition from just being somebody who loved golf and loved golf courses to starting to write about golf courses. And this was back around 2000. And just whether it came up on Golf Club Atlas or other places online, I kind of became familiar with you. And I, I always felt sort of a kinship with you because I figured we were about the same age. And this was probably like right when you were getting into the construction side. How How old are you? Mm-hmm. 44. 44. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a couple years older than you, but I always kind of thought, well, this is the guy like, like I can relate to. Cause a lot of the guys, you know, were who you were talking about all golf course architecture and writing books seemed a little bit older. I was a little bit younger. So were you, so I always kind of felt a kinship to you. And then I, you know, That's heard cool. when you got into the construction aspect and I had a lot of respect for that. Cause you, you just jumped right into it. What else did you have going for you at that time? Did you have a backup plan? No, <laughs> which, which helped, I think. Um, you know, I mean, it was, you know, a golf architecture, funny enough, was something that I wanted to do. I mean, since I can remember, since I was a teenager, um, you know, my dad, I was lucky that my dad introduced me to golf at a young age at a, at a good golf course that Donald Ross designed. Um, he had, you know, all the, my dad had all the classic architecture books, so I had access to that stuff when I was young and I started reading all that stuff when I was young 
And um, I really had a one track mind. I just thought I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And um, I was lucky enough that, you know, I got, I heard of Rod Whitman who, uh, you know, a Canadian guy who was working for Pete Dye and was friends with Bill Core and had done some work with Core and Crenshaw. And the big thing, um, you know, for me relative to Rod was that I'd heard that he got on the equipment and shaped his own golf courses. And everyone I had talked to um, had told me, you know, if you want to get in the business, you got to learn how to build the stuff. You know, that's how you're going to be, be the best architect you could be, not by drawing plans, but by actually getting out and knowing how to shape and build. And um, so I just bugged Rod and bugged Rod and bugged Rod. Um, they he was actually out work the first time I ever talked to him. He was actually out working on Friar's Head with Coor and Crenshaw. Oh, really? Yeah, it was the late nineties. Uh-huh. You know, ninety nine ish, ninety eight, something like that. Or and anyhow, he he had a, he had a project coming up in Edmonton at what's Black it's Blackhawk Golf Club now. And um, I bugged him and bugged him, and I lied to him that I knew how to run equipment. I'd never run equipment before, <laughs> and uh, he, he, yeah, he entertained it, and and um, I was lucky that he said, yeah, if you want to, if you want to come on out and work, let's do it. And I headed out to Edmonton, and um, yeah, here we are, almost twenty years later. Time flies when you're having yeah. fun. Right? Yeah, I, mean, I talked to Rod on this show a couple months ago. He's an he's a great he seems like a great guy and kind of a soft spoken guy. Is that is he does he get louder on site or is he, does he get more vocal or what's his personality like? No, it's um, I, a matter of fact, Eric. I listened to the podcast and you did a fantastic job getting Rod to to uh, <laughs> talk, talk about some really interesting stuff because uh, you know he's not, he's a he's a quiet guy. You know he like. His favorite thing to do is to get in the bulldozer and be by himself and just work, you know. Um, that's one of the things he taught me, too, that I'll never forget because when I first met him, you know, I just I had mentioned I'd read all the books and knew all the theory and philosophy, and I think I was driving him crazy talking about that. And one, At one point, he said to me, you know, 10% of golf course architecture is what you're talking about, and 90% is just going to work, <laughs> pushing dirt getting material in the right place, shaping, you know, and, and I always think about it that, that way, you know, I mean, I think about that on a day like today while we're out, you know, I've only got today and tomorrow to finish the project we're doing. It's 90 degrees out and about a hundred percent humidity here in, in Minnesota. And, you know, in a lot of ways we're just working and, uh, it's, it's kind of funny when you go on golf club Atlas and see people talking about architecture and it's all theory and philosophy and, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of just hard days of not hard, but you know, there's just a lot of days of work. You know, involved with uh, with what we do. If you've only got until tomorrow, what the hell are you doing talking to me? You need to be out there working, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> I needed to get I needed to get out of the heat for a couple minutes. To be honest, with you. all right, we'll we'll prefer this as a cool down conversation. Yeah. Well, that must have been kind of a little bit of a bummer when Rod told you that you know, all this garbage you're talking about is, is like 10% of what we do. <laughs> Cause as a, somebody who approaches it from a, from a purely theoretical standpoint, you know, that's 90% of it, you know, that's the whole, that's all the fun. Yeah. You know, it, no, to me, it was actually very eye opening and very educational. Um, it was it, it, like, again, it stuck with me here, like whatever it is, 18 years later, I still think about him saying that. And, you know, whenever I kind of get tired in the machine or, you know, like we all do. And, you know, I just think, man, we got to finish this work, you know, 
And uh, again, I think that's an important thing for you know any kid interested in this business uh, to, to know, that's for sure. Well, you worked with Rod for a number of years. Do you think he gets the acclaim or the credit that he deserves for his talent? It seems to me that he is vastly underrated still, even though he's got Cabot links, which everybody knows now, but he ought to had to have a few more projects like that. Yeah. I, it, it amazes me. I mean, it, I guess it has everything to do with his personality. Um, you know, he doesn't, has never really made it made attempt to seek out publicity. It's just his style and the way that he is. And I think he's, he's happy with that. Um, but one thing I am happy about, you know, I, I mean, Blackhawk, Sagebrush, Cabot, which are three projects that I was lucky to work with them on, you know, they're all ranked at least in the top 15, maybe even the top 10 courses in Canada right now. And there's not an architect who's done that since Stanley Thompson, you know, so you're right. talking about a one, one, once in a generation talent in Rod. And, you know, and also those were three sites that were pretty spectacular as well. So, um, but again, he, he, there's there's also been architects who've grabbed or had opportunities on good sites who haven't made the most of them, and he certainly made the most of those three. So I think I think he's st- you know finally finally starting to to get the credit he deserves. But I would agree, he, not not nearly as much as he deserves. That's for sure. You went out kind of on your own and ventured out into the field as as Jeff Mingay and not somebody who works for anybody else. And I think it was 2009. That seems like a pretty bad year to try to go out and start your own business <laughs> yeah it, it, it certainly wasn't the best year and we we were just kind of coming to the end of uh building cabot links actually and um i had an opportunity to uh well i was hired actually to do a master plan for the victoria golf club uh out in british columbia right and boy that was a that was an interesting year because you know again we were that summer we were working on cabot which is basically on the atlantic ocean and then that fall, I got to go out and start work in Victoria on the Pacific Ocean. So I've, I've often thought, boy, that'll probably never happen again in my career, you know, working on both oceans <laughs> yeah. the same year on two projects. I mean, that's like what Bill Coor does, not what Jeff Mingay does. But Victoria really helped a lot. I mean, um, we, we've done some really neat work there. Um, they are involved with the Pacific Northwest Golf Association. So a lot of uh, people who were members at the Seattle area clubs started to see what we were doing at Victoria. And um, I slowly picked up, you know, a couple jobs in Seattle. Now I think I'm working on that six clubs in the Seattle area. But yeah, it was just a a bad time to start your own business. But I just had a stroke of luck um, where I think I caught on in the in the right region, a region where there were quite a few clubs looking to looking to spruce up their golf courses at that time. And that just gave me the push that I needed. And here we are. So, you know, there's always a bit of luck involved. That's for sure. Yeah. If you look at that area of, of Western Northwestern Washington and that, you know, Southwestern part of Canada around Vancouver, and it's, you know, it's not really known for great golf. There's Capilano, which is pretty well known, but you know, it's yeah. not, considered the <laughs> like a hotbed of, of quality no. golf course architecture. When I heard that you were working up there and, and getting, you know, another restoration, another restoration, my first thought was that, man, me, Jeff got, he got like banished up to the Northwest. He's like out, <laughs> out, out on some island up there. But then the more I thought about it, it seemed like it was more like you were a gold prospector and you hit a vein of gold up there that nobody knew existed. And that would be, you know, these golf courses of Vernon McCann, 
who yes. was very active up there. You've become a you know as knowledgeable about his architecture and his ideas as anyone else, and you've gone on to consult with a number of clubs whom he designed golf courses for. Uh, so it, it turned, it wasn't banishment at all. It was a real, probably a real career boost and kind of set you on your path. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you say that, that, uh, the Pacific Northwest, you know, it's not known as, uh, as a, uh, you know, hotbed of golf course architecture. Um, because what McCann, did in the early days, you know, he, I mean, his first golf course was Royal Callwood, uh, in Victoria and finished in 1913. And then he went on to do some very good work in the twenties, uh, Broadmoor in Seattle, uh, Furcrest down in Tacoma, uh, a couple courses in the Portland area. Um, but by, you know, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, McCann died in, um, early 60s if my memory serves me correctly his golf courses had evolved uh so much and so poorly that um there was no good golf left in in the pacific northwest but boy you look at these old photos of of mccann's work in its original form and I mean, it, it looks as good as anything Tillinghast was doing or Mackenzie was doing or any of those big names were doing out east. Um, you know, he was just trapped up there, as as you just, you know, kind of inferred I I am. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's a long way from, from everywhere now. I mean, you know, imagine in the 1920s trying to get to Seattle and yeah. Vancouver. But um, but again, uh, so the, the, these golf courses had evolved, and, and through my involvement in Vic, at Victoria Golf Club, where McCann was a member, and he and he um, he, uh, he ran his business out of the golf club, actually um, doing research on, on Victoria, you know, led me to doing research on a lot of his other work. And again, once I had realized how good his original work was, and then started to share that information with. Uh, with the clubs I'm now working at, it was really eye-opening to people in terms of what they once had. Um, so you know, it's really struck a chord with with a lot a lot of uh, a lot of Northwest golfers. Um, and as you said, now we're in the process of trying to restore a lot of that stuff. Was McCann? Who did he associate with? Was he aware of what was going on back east? With you mentioned Tillinghast, or uh, what was the availability of, of information that he had access to, or was he Great just kind question. of coming into the, his own ideas in a in an organic, you know, isolated environment? That's a great question. I often wondered that, and um, you know, eventually have come to the conclusion that most of what he he learned relative to golf and golf courses and golf course architecture um, happened in Ireland where he was born and raised. Well, I should say he was born and raised in Ireland, played a lot of championship caliber golf in the UK uh, before he immigrated to Victoria. And um, I, through a lot of research that Michael Rist has done, Michael Rist is his biographer. Right. And um, a lot of the research I've done, I th he had a lot of associations over in the UK with a lot of um, very well-known people, you know, in the early 20th century, who um, also went on to to uh, become pioneers in in golf architecture. People like, uh, you know, Bernard Darwin, for example, uh, John Lowe. Uh, you know, McCann was playing uh, British amateur caliber golf, and I think he was uh, running in in those circles again, before he came to North America. So I think a lot of his knowledge 
came out of that. Mm-hmm. So he had the kind of like the British early 20th century British influence, which derived really from the Heathland courses and some links inspired courses. And, and does that, does that translate to the Pacific Northwest? Can you pick uh, up on any of that architecture from old photographs or, you know, what do you, well, what do you take from that? That's another good question. <laughs> it doesn't translate very well to the Northwest, but what is interesting, and you know, I think this was pretty common back in the 20s and 30s, is that most of McCann's best courses from, from that era are on very, very sandy sites, very mm-hmm. sandy, well-drained sites. You know, so I think, much like the Heathlands, really, to be honest, um, you know, I think what they did before, as soon as anyone had an idea to, to build a golf club back then, I think the first thing they did was, you know, do a good search for not not only good terrain, but again, sandy, well-drained uh, ground. So um, he was building on, on good sites with good material. Um, a lot of those sites have been logged, uh, much like, say, Sunningdale, for example. Um, so he was working there. I mean, heavily treed golf courses now. Um where we ha- where we're having a hard time <laughs> uh, getting those trees removed in a lot of cases, but um, there 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 was now that I'm talking out loud and thinking about it, there there was a bit of similarity between what he was doing on sites like Furcrest and and um, uh, Broadmoor, um, you know, t- comparatively to uh, to those great Heathland courses near London. Those trees issues that you're dealing with, when we think of the Pacific Northwest, that's all we think about, really. But th- those trees, were those trees planted in some of the cases on these older golf courses through the years? Or is it mostly just these golf courses were the feature, the trees that are, are featured or were already there? They were cut through these uh, swaths of, of woods. Well, a lot of this, a lot of the sites that McCann worked on out there again in the twenties and thirties, they were they were sites that had been logged once or twice. Um, so there was some second and third growth trees that have now you know been there for almost a century. But just like anywhere, I mean, uh, golf courses out there too have been overplanted with the wrong species and in bad locations. So we're dealing with both of those issues. Um, I've also come to the conclusion that one of the Biggest problems regarding trees in the Northwest um, stems from Sahali. Um, you know, Sahali was was cut through, um, you know, very very thick uh, native forest, and it's always been known as a heavily treed tight golf course. And it's the only golf course in the Pacific Northwest and, until Chambers that uh, that had hosted you know, major championships. So everyone had sort of measured themselves up against Sahali and, and a lot of golfers in the Northwest really believe that in order to be a good demanding test of golf, you know, you got to be threading the needle between, you know, 200 foot tall Douglas firs. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to bring, you know, the architectural philosophy that we, you know, most of us believe into that, that region. It's been really challenging, but, um, we're making we're making progress. Yeah, I mean, McCann, he probably wouldn't enjoy seeing his courses, you know, shrouded in trees if he came from that. <laughs> from given the background and influences he had, exactly. I mean, I, I think we all like trees on golf courses. We just want the proper species in the in the right locations, um, not playing through you know bowling alleys and f- of, of claustrophobia, you know, <laughs> which uh, which a lot of those Northwest courses have unfortunately turned into. So. Yeah, aside from agronomic issues and getting sunlight and air circulation, is there? A, can you work with trees though? As a, as a designer, as somebody who's envisioning golf holes, 
can, can you you're in the Pacific Northwest, you can't really get around it. I mean, is there can you make a case for having tree lined fairways there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, Douglas firs, for example, I mean, uh, beautiful trees, you know, cedars, beautiful trees. I, I'm, I'm more of a fan of uh, clusters of trees that are complemented by some open space, you know, and vistas and and, the, and that open space also allows sunlight and airflow, as you just said, to, to get through the golf course. So that's what we've really been trying to do is really highlight, you know, the best specimens. Um, and again, instead of having picket fence rows of fur down the right and left sides of the fairways, creating a more clumpy um, look, uh, restoring vistas. So there, there is room for trees. Absolutely. I mean, it's the golf course should reflect its environment and, and that's certainly the, uh, the Pacific Northwest environment, but I would never use a tree as a design feature. I mean, I've, I've always fallen back on the, I can't even remember who said it originally, but you know, someone said at some point that a tree should never be used as a design feature because simply because one day it's not going to be exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then what do you do? What do you do with the hole when the tree's not there? So, yeah, I like trees for you know um, visual purpose and again to to re- to reflect the nature of the site, but cer- certainly not as a design feature. Was it was it at Furcrest where you, I think I you post a picture of your restorative work on the volcano hole, whereas yeah. in the backdrop there's only a few small trees and you can see. Mount Rainier. Rainier, yeah. Um, and then there was the before picture, which is just a wall of trees. You can't see anything. And then, uh, yeah. you know, you can bring back those vistas. So that gives you an idea of what those sites might have looked like, you know, 70, 80 years ago. Exactly. And the funny thing about that particular instance is it's only about two or three trees that are actually on the golf course that are blocking that view of Mount Rainier. There's a large cluster of 20 or 30 or more trees on a neighboring property um, off of the golf golf club's property that are actually blocking the view mm. of Mount Rainier. So I've been asked that uh, quite a bit, actually. You know, hey, the volcano hole looks great, restored, but how come we can't see Mount Rainier? Um, another interesting part of that story is it, it's on a it's on a um, uh, property that's owned by a, a member at Furcrest. And he, he's actually he's actually interested in in uh, getting rid of some of those trees. I guess they're affecting his 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 own yard and his home. So the club has had some discussions with him about uh, paying for the removal of some of those trees. So perhaps in the near future we may be able to restore that view. Yeah, that was just, it's a stunning picture. The original, yeah, it the really black is. And white. It almost looks photoshopped. It does. But it, was, it was 1920 something, so certainly couldn't have been photoshopped. Yeah, I mean the. Rainier looks like Mount Fuji. It's just like this titanic presence in the background. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So when you go into these clubs and, you know, I guess the idea is to restore them, assuming that that's what they want, and you use the photographic evidence that you can have old documents, just like anybody who's going to restore a golf course does, you do all the research that's possible. When you get to a, a certain point when you just aren't sure what was there, how do you proceed at that point? Oh, that's a, that's another excellent question. Um, well, I you know I'd like to think that my familiarity with McCann's architecture, his philosophy and style um, on those particular golf courses, you know, I'm able to to what's the right word? You know, sort of sort of dig into my memory bank and my knowledge of of, of his work and, and kind of you know determine what he may have done. 
um, you know, again, relative to philosophy and style. Um, but that's always a challenge. It is. And, um, you know, I don't think we're ever, restoration is a, is a strange word because in a lot of ways, I don't think we're ever really trying, we confuse members at golf clubs too, which is unfortunate. I've learned that the hard way because a lot of people, as soon as you say restoration, they say, well, why would we want to bring our golf course back to the way it was a century ago? And then you sort of backtrack and you think, well, you know what, that's not really what we're doing. I mean, we want a golf course that functions up to modern standards or modern expectations, contemporary golfers' expectations, but but reflects its history and reflects its its design lineage. So, you know, we're still looking for length, and we know we all know what what the golf balls doing these days, and you can't ignore that. And it's important to incorporate forward tees, and it's important to make sure the irrigation system is up to. Again, you know, modern standard, the drainage is working, um, all that stuff that, that, you know, may not have been available 100 years ago, but at the same time put back a, a style and a flavor, a look and a feel that, that again, reflects the, the club's uh, history. So, I mean, that's one of the, the really fun challenges of, of doing what we're doing on these at these older clubs. Yeah, I think one of the challenges with, doing what you're talking about is at some point you come to a situation where you know you are trying to interpret you're using your past knowledge to interpret but you're also going to going to have to make decisions about things like you know the original hole was 380 yards and if they drove it x distance most of the players would be hitting this club into it and the green is designed to accept this type of shot then you start to get into this sort of tenuous place where are you really trying to create the the shot you know, the shots and the shot length, or are you just more concerned about representing what existed in the golf course before and you're okay with, you know, having different distances and clubs into greens? How, how closely do you toe that line and how difficult is it to make those decisions? Well, it's, you know, I immediately, as soon as you said that, I thought of Augusta, you know, and they, their claim that that's what they're trying to do by adding length and things. The problem I have is that most of the older, or I shouldn't call them older, but most of the historic clubs that I'm working at, you they're landlocked. So it's, it's really difficult to find the length to, you know, replicate how certain holes may have played 80, 90 or a hundred years ago. So I don't worry about that too much, but but again, knowing you know, knowing what the golf balls do, and even for even for the top amateur players, I mean, you, we'd be remiss not not to try to do that where where it's possible. But it's in so many cases, it's just not possible. Going back for a second to um, <clears throat> McCann, he's one of the few architects really that was, and he didn't design a whole lot of golf courses, not compared to some other architects of his era, but. He was fairly busy, as we've been spoken about in the Pacific Northwest, uh, up until you know the Depression, and I'm sure things slowed down. But he came out of the Depression and was still designing golf courses, and not too many people of his generation or his age or his you know his uh, moment in time made it through the Depression through World War II and were still active. Uh, William Langford is one that I can think of. I'm not sure that there are a whole lot of others. What do you do? You notice a from what you've observed and studied and know, do you notice any kind of change in his design style? The rest of the golf world, as we know, came out of World War II. Blank slate kind of just started over and recreated the modern style of golf after that, more or less. What do you notice in McCann pre- and post-Depression World War II? 
Yeah, he... It is pretty amazing that he again he designed his first golf course in 1913 and was and was working right up till he died. I think it was like I said early 60s. Um, it, I think it was 1964, which is uh, pretty amazing. You know, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, six decades. And, and as you mentioned, mo most of his contemporaries uh, in the pre World War II era were were you know deceased by the time the war ended. What's interesting about working on his golf courses is that he came back to many of his courses for example that he de designed in the 20s he, he he came back in the in the 50s and uh, wrote reports on his own work um there's a really interesting report at inglewood which was actually his second course in 1919 just north of seattle um, and there's a report i think it's from 1949 where he's sort of well, he is critiquing his own work, and um, is he critical thing, or is he like, "I this is awesome. I was really good." Uh, you know, I wouldn't say he was critical, but he, what it, the way I interpret it is, he, he became as he got older. He, it seems to me that he became a lot more practical. You know, he in the twenties and thirties. You know, you think of the volcano hole and 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 other work he did where the bunkers were very dramatic. There was there were a lot of bunkers on particular holes. Uh, there were short bunkers, um, you know, carry-type bunkers, you know, where there's a bunker 150 yards off the tee in the direct line of the green. He, he, would, he would advise, in, you know, 40 years later to fill that in. You know, he'd say, well, that, those bunkers that are short off the tee, we don't need those anymore. All they do is bother the higher handicap players, and that's not what we want to do. Or, um, you know, we should move the... The, uh, the 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 greenside bunker further away from the green, so we can get mechanical equipment to to uh, mow the mow the grass between the uh, bunker and the green and ease maintenance, um, things like that, which which has actually made it a little bit more challenging for me in some circumstances to restore some of his more exciting work, because in a lot of cases, Inglewood's a great example. I mean, we've got some awesome historic photos of, of Inglewood that we've been using to to restore holes there and it's the work is his original work from 1922 is when he bunkered the course he designed it in 1919 came back in 22 to bunker it and there's some really really great stuff that in the, in his 1949 report he advises them to remove and eliminate and fill in so my, my master plan has actually suggested restoring a lot of the stuff from the early 20s. And I've gotten some pushback from some members who've said, well, look, he came back in 1949 and said we should fill that bunker in or, well, mostly fill in bunkers in. And, uh, and I just simply have to say, well, I, I disagree with the 1949 McCann and I love the 1922 work that he did. So um, He was drunk for the last 20 years of his life. <laughs> tell him that. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. There we go. But uh, but that that's been an interesting one because there's a few members who've paid attention there, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he did uh, he did recommend changing his own work, but uh, I I'm not afraid to to disagree with him either. Those guys were not always perfect, especially as they as they got older. Yeah. Well. Yeah. How disappointing is that for you to read that you know he came back and was starting to make practical yet sort of you know, compromi compromising his ideas to, you know, the technology of the day and the current economic trends. How disappointing well, I, does that make you feel? Um, you know, I think he had, I think he had, I think he had the, the right 
thing in mind in terms of practicality. You know, I think he, and I really respect this actually, he, he came at golf architecture in a practical way in terms of wanting to do what was right for the club. So I think in a lot of cases, you know, not only was he recommending filling in bunkers um, so he wasn't bugging higher handicap players, but he was also recommending filling in bunkers to save money on maintenance, um, you know, recommending, again, moving bunkers further away from greens to ease maintenance. Um, now that mechanical equipment had been introduced, you know, since the golf courses were originally built. Um, so I can't say I'm more fascinated than disappointed um, because, again, I think he think he had the right thing in mind and, and the right thing at heart. But um, but it certainly made it a challenge for me in, in some cases. It's hard to imagine like Bill Coor you know, in, in 15 years saying, you know, going to Sandhills and saying, you know, I, I think we should like fill in these bunkers or, you know, do this or that. That's an, that's an interesting uh, comparison. Boy, I'd love, I'd love to, I'd love to see that, you know, if you could fast forward 40 years from 1995 when Sandhills opened and see what Bill would say going back. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure at Sandhills, he, he'd be pretty pleased with it, but it's typically not in the golf course architect's you know, mental repertoire to second guess himself or go back and change, you know, they're always happy to change other people's work, but you know, it's, they wouldn't even want to go back and like significantly alter their own work. Pete Dye would, you know, cause he <laughs> thinks he, you know, he's never, he's restless and never satisfied, but yeah, I don't know. You know, I think, I think, uh, I think a lot of people's egos are speaking when they say they're happy with it the first time, but I think we all like look at certain things that we've done and say, boy, I'd like a, you know, another crack at this piece or that piece or that green or that bunker, you know, I think it's just the nature of, of the work that we do that, um, uh, you know, and I think it's, it's interesting that you look at the best courses in the world and they were all, they're all courses that were tweaked constantly over the years, you know, everything from St. Andrews to Augusta to, uh, Piners to Oakmont to Marion, Pine Valley, you know, they, they evolved over decades of design changes and natural evolution i've always you know i've always thought about that and how interesting that is so you know if you let a architect keep coming back and tweaking things and and you know i think there's no there's no harm in that it, 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 history certainly speaks to it yeah Although it seems like what McCann was recommending, at, at least at Inglewood, was a little more than a tweak. It was kind of like True. these seismic shifts in philosophy. Yeah, he was going the other way. You're yeah. right. He was. He was making it, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, he was kind of dumbing it down instead of taking it a notch up, which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, you're. A, I know you're a big golf course historian, very interested in the things that happened prior to the Great Depression and have studied a lot. And then now we're talking about this period coming out of World War II when the culture had changed, the demands of the player and society had changed, and the way the golf courses were built and developed and designed changed as well, mostly as a response, as we said, like to, you know, to different technology, changes in equipment, changes in demands of the clients and who was paying for the golf course to be built, and obviously some architectural ego as, as well. But I, I struggle with this because... Obviously, all the lessons that we learn now and that people like yourself and, you know, the top architects, Dote, Core, Gil Hans, Mike DeVries, everybody who's really operating at the highest levels takes most, almost all of their, what there is historically to learn from this golden age period. 
rightly mm-hmm. so. And there's there's just nothing. It's disappointing to me, and I I don't know if I'm asking a question or just expressing a thought. It's it, it's it disappointing to me that from this period from maybe 1955 through Sand Hills or through you know Pete dies notwithstanding he's out on his own. But you know nobody ever says oh I, you know I'm really inspired by George Cobb and what he did here. And nobody right. says you know I mean you get a little Dick Wilson, but you know even 25 years ago Robert Trent Jones was considered like an a-list architect and you know not that many people were critical of him now he's now he's trashed but it's you know it's it's just disappointing that we went all these decades and none of these guys except for pete Dye, moved the art form forward at all it's just you know and i've spent a lot of time trying to understand why that was and you can explain it but you but it's hard hard to excuse it is it yeah, I've often thought about this too. In fact, I did a presentation um, for a club I'm working at in Ottawa, uh, capital city of Canada. Mm-hmm. Old club, founded in 1910. Um, where again, once again, we're looking at you know kind of bringing it back to a style and a in a um, yeah, giving it a look in the the course of look and feel that's more consistent with the club history and its design lineage. And I, the, the example I used was. You'd look at the top 25 golf courses on Golf Magazine's uh, world list, and there's only two that were uh, built after World War II, and that's Sand Hills and Pacific Dunes. And what I explained was that Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw and Tom Doak and his, his guys, you know, they resurrected, they were the ones responsible for resurrecting a design philosophy and style that was similar to a pre-World War II philosophy and style. And then boom, their, their two courses fall into the world top 25, whereas none had previously, you know, uh, uh, climbed into that list. It's, it's fascinating. And, and what I think it really boils down to are, are, are two things. Uh, one, philosophically, you know, it was a big deal and most important for the, pre-World War II architects to to have their golf courses reflect the nature of, of their sites, which Sand Hills and Pacific Dunes both do. And secondly, there's no uh, there was no intent to make the golf course difficult. You know, I mean, easy and hard are not um, words that I'm sure Bill Coor or Tom Doak even talk about, mm-hmm. um, or that Dallas McKenzie talked about, for example. What they're trying to do is make the golf course interesting to play for everyone and beautiful to look at and in a beautiful environment to be in. And I think those two things were kind of lost in the in the post-World War II era for a while, particularly to blame would probably be Robert Trent Jones, you know, in his work at Oakland Hills in 51 there you know when oakland hills was made difficult for the top players and it got so much publicity uh, you know ben hogan won and herbert warren wind wrote a a long architectural essay about the work that he did on the golf course suddenly you know a golf course being difficult was was what everyone was trying to achieve and i can't believe that that had such an effect on golf that lasted you know through, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, you know, and even into the 80s. Um, so again, you know, just resurrecting that philosophy 
that was employed by those pre-World War II era guys, um, you know, speaks to speaks to how great golf courses are built and the architecture of the, the, the industry had just lost its way for three or four decades, which is hard, as you said, which is completely hard to believe. Yeah, no, I don't know that I'd ever quite thought of it that way when thinking about sand hills and Pacific dunes and, and that, that type of golf course that those two places ushered in as being, you know, the differences, they didn't try to be hard. And excuse me, my next thought is, you know, then it's a shame that the industry went through the massive crash and, and retraction for, in 2008, because I'm not sure that those lessons, as valuable as they are and as instructive as they are, because they produced the courses that they did, could really be carried forward on a wide scale, since no, since hardly any new courses were being built, except for in places occasionally that resembled those places, you know, other like linksy, dunesy, oceanside or sandy sites where that type of golf was natural. But we lost an opportunity to take that lesson from Sandhills and Pacific Dunes and apply it across the golf spectrum to develop right. an, a new culture of golf course. And it's a shame because maybe by the time we start building new courses again, I don't know if that lesson will still resonate as strongly as it, as it would have 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, that's that's a good point, but I I do think that it has the lesson has been applied to a lot of restoration and renovation work still as well. You know, well, whereas not many new courses or comparatively not many new courses have been built in recent years, there's certainly been a lot of great renovation and, and restoration work that's been done. Um, you know, employing that that pre World War II philosophy and and style. So so I think golf is certainly benefited from the lessons of sand hills and, and pacific dunes in, in a lot more ways than than just seeing more new courses built along similar lines i always worry that if the day comes when we can finance course construction again and we start to see some new courses if they're going to be affiliated with endeavors to make people rich and housing developments and other non-golf purposes it's going to be very hard to apply the lessons of Sandhills and Pacific Dunes to that to that model. I mean, it's going to be very easy just to slip right back into the old, you know, ching ching, you know, right. Get the loans, turn and burn kind of golf course. That temptation is always going to be there, and it doesn't really reconcile itself with the kind of golf course that that's you know, like I said, Sandhills and Pacific Dunes represent. No, you're 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 right about that, and I and I think that's been a good thing for golf since 2008. You know, the, the new courses that we've seen built since 2008 are being built on sites that are conducive to golf. Um, you know, they're being built by people who aren't in it just for the money; they're in it to do the right thing. So again, I you know I I don't really see the doom and gloom that a lot of people see in golf. I think a lot of great things have happened in golf in the last. Uh, in the last 10 years, even though we've heard about, you know, uh, declining uh, participation and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I, I think golf's on a great track. It's always been a neat, a niche sport and it'll always be here. And, um, you know, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot because of course I'd like to see more new courses being built so I can have an opportunity to do a few more myself. Right. But, um, but I, I think golf's in a great place right now. Did you watch the tournament last week at Trinity Forest? 
I caught a little bit of it, but not enough of it because I was certainly interested in uh, in seeing it. Um, but uh, I didn't I didn't see enough to really com uh, to really comment right. on. Yeah, I, it's one of those courses where it's hard to watch it on television because it, you know you you don't you're missing you're missing the whole point of it really you know you see balls rolling away but you don't get a sense for and I don't think the television broadcast did a great job of of drawing out the the interest of that site but how yeah. how how, uh, how much attention do you pay to the professional game and in, in what you do you know I know you're working mostly on older golf courses where it might not apply as much but how much how much stock do you put in all the all the debates and arguments that are going on revolving around the distance and the ball debate? I really don't pay any attention <laughs> to to professional golf. To be honest with you, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I will tune in um, uh, when it, when a tournament's at a place like Trinity Forest or um, you know one of the great courses, Riviera, Harbor Town. <laughs> Certainly watch the majors, um, but uh, I don't I don't pay that much attention. Um, I used to be more concerned about the ball debate, uh, than I am now a days. I think it's just become a, a futile. Did just, yeah. Did you just get bored of it or did, did you come to well, a realization? I, mean, I, I just, there's enough people fighting that battle that right. you know, I've, I've sort of <laughs> tried to just concentrate on the work that I, I, the opportunities that I have and, and do the best at what I'm good at. And, and I don't think I'm the one that's going to, you know, win the win the equipment uh, debate. That's for sure. Um, but it is unfortunate. I mean, I think there's so many negatives um, relative to uh, the ball traveling further. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I watched my brother hit it. You know, my brother's 42 years old now. And I mean, he hits it further than he did when he was 22. Um, and that's because he's got a brand new driver and a brand new golf ball, whatever he's using now. The ball's going further for for top amateurs, just like it is going further for the pros. And as I was just going to say, I mean, when you talk about the ball going further, we've all heard this argument for 80 years. You know, you need a bigger piece of property to build a longer golf course. Building a bigger, longer golf course is going to cost more money. That course is going to cost more money to maintain. It's going to take longer to play no matter which tees you're playing because the people in front of you may be playing from further back. I mean, the days of, of, of 6,200 yards and three-hour rounds, I mean, that sounds so romantic and perfect to me, you know? Oh, sure, um, it does. It, it really does. And and to to watch Dustin Johnson and, and, you know, all those guys do what they do is is amazing. I mean, they're, they're amazing athletes, but it's become a terribly boring game. Um watching them just hit it high and far and um, you know stick it on the green um, greens that are typically receptive and that's why I wish I'd watched more Trinity Forest because you know I'd thought as a golf course architect I mean I would love to be put in Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw's shoes someday you know so even though I don't pay attention to the professional game that much right now relative to my work I mean it would be a dream for someone to say hey uh you know, take this piece of ground and build us a golf course that uh, the pros are going to play someday. Because I'd like to, you know, again, that challenge of having to think completely differently than we typically do working on club courses would be, would be a lot of fun. And, uh, and again, a really, really interesting challenge to take on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I need to get to Dallas because I'd like to take a look at that golf course in person and even talk to, 
talk to Bill and Ben someday about what they were thinking. I think that would be, I mean, there's a, there's a hard, I mean, there's a book right there. I bet yeah. you, you know? Yeah. I think I'm kind of like you in that I'd prefer to watch golf and consider tour golf just as a pure entertainment and I can watch it and hopefully there's a, there's a good battle going on coming down the stretch on Sunday with some big names in it. That's the way I want to take in my professional golf. But I'm coming around to the idea that since 90% of the people know golf through television and through the, the PGA game, that's, that sets a huge example. So what they see and what they derive from what they see on television has a ripple down effect you know, throughout the industry, really, and also all the way down to golf courses and what golfers expect from a golf course, what they're willing to accept, and what what kind of what kind of message that sends to the kind of golf they can and should expect. It's really like the PGA Tour is like the front porch of golf. That's the where everybody comes in through that door, and once they're in, you know, if 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 they're just you know comparing everything to the pro game, we're in a we're in a lot of trouble. So we have to kind of do what we can to make the pro game healthy. So it trickles down into other things. You know, and I, I think we're yeah. thinking about like, we, we've mentioned golf club Atlas a few times. I mean, that is such a small, you said golf's a niche sport. That's a golf architecture is a niche, 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 small niche within <laughs> that. I mean, you think about how many people are on golf club Atlas. It's like 1500 members. And then another, maybe a couple thousand people who like drop in now and again. And you compare that to other golf forums, like golf, WRR, WRX, whatever it's called. You know, and I'm—I don't know how the numbers, but I'm, I'm assuming that they have a much larger uh, participation base because they're talking about equipment and they're talking about instruction and there are so many other things. The PGA Tour—that's a—that's where—that's the golf culture and society right yep. there, and they're getting all their information, not all of it, but a lot of it from the PGA Tour and what they see on television. So, yeah, I think it reminds me. You know, I, I think it was William Flynn who years ago said, you know, a golf architect's got to realize that. Um, He's a or he or she is a is a major educational factor in the game, you know. And in a lot of my work working at clubs and renovating and restoring golf courses, is you know trying to be an educator, yeah, trying to explain to people, um, you know, what you just said that you know what we see on TV, for example, uh, every weekend on the PGA tour is not what we're going for here, you know, and, and to educate them on opportunities that are going to benefit themselves and their clubs and their golf course. My dad always told me too, no matter what, no matter what business you get into, you're going to have to, you're going to have to sell, you know? So a lot of our work, you know, we're trying to be creative. We love building golf courses. We, we philosophize about architecture, but you know, there's a, a big time educational factor you have to play and and you have to you know throw some salesmanship in there too to to uh, to convince these people about what's right in each particular situation and uh, and as you know I mean all, every situation at every club is different in terms of what what that particular club and those golfers need or or what's available in terms of uh, opportunities right you've been able to continue to parlay success into other successes. What's, what's the key to you getting jobs? Is it your personality? Is it the way you can present your product? Do people just go look at your past work? What is, what's the key for you? How have you been so successful? Um, I've always been flattered that um, people have said that I'm entertaining to listen to speak about golf and course architecture because I'm, 
uh, the the word I always hear is passionate. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so often when I'm when I'm up giving a presentation at a club about a master plan, I'll make no notes on purpose because, you know, I've studied the golf course and I've put a lot of thought into into my ideas and concepts and why I've come up with those ideas and I I think I'm able to to speak again passionately about it and intelligently about it and um, I think that's been been a real key to me getting projects approved and then uh, and then I've been lucky enough to do projects in the right spots where people either either see them or superintendents have been courteous to just uh, you know recommend me word of mouth um, but I think my passion for for architecture is, uh, you know, has, has really been been key to the success I have had so far. Well, you're definitely going to be part of, you know, the conversation of golf and golf design for the next couple of decades. But when you look, when you project to the future, and, and some future historian historian looks back and writes about this period in golf course design, maybe the last ten or fifteen years. What do you think the tone of that will be? There's been a lot of successes, and we talked about you know the minimalist movement and, and what they did in the early 2000s. And was it enough for the for that style of design to simply turn the tide back in a positive direction, or are there is that is there unfinished business that will realize or things that we didn't quite capitalize on looking ahead? You know, from a perspective of 50 years. I don't think so. I, I think, as we were talking about earlier, I think things have um, logically and intelligently come full circle uh, in golf architecture. You know, um, you asked that great question about, you know, where did McCann learn and where did he get his information from? You know, he didn't have the resources, obviously, that, that someone like myself has. You know, I could look back on the last century plus of golf architecture and see what worked and see what didn't work. And I think really that's where Tom Doak and Bill Coor came around to, you know, when they built Sand Hills and Pacific Dunes. They realized that what was happening in that in that pioneering era in the 1920s and 30s era worked, you know, better than what had happened as we discussed in the 50s and 60s, 70s. And, you know, looking back on that entire history and realizing that it has come full circle I'll go back and say again that I, I think golf's in a great place right now. I think we got a lot of great architects who fill who are working great philosophically and stylistically, who are pairing with developers who are who are finding the right properties and building golf courses for the right reasons. You know, so I think I think this is going to be a, a, you know written about by smart people, intelligent writers and thinkers as as a as you know a period comparable to the what we call the golden age right in the in the 20s and 30s i mean the volume of work's not there uh but the the quality is certainly there and i think a lot of clubs and courses uh, clubs have been established and courses have been built that are going to stand the test of time whereas in the 70s and 80s and that era there certainly weren't as many of those types of places uh being built it's definitely hard to argue with the quality. It it will last, you know, indefinitely forever. But what opportunity do you receive for yourself? You've mentioned that word a few times. Is that you know is it is it healthy for every one of these great jobs that comes up to continue to go to the the same three firms? I mean, do you see yourself getting a chance like that or or fitting in? Given that the, these types of developments up to this point have been so uncommon. 
Yeah, you know that that's that's an interesting point. I mean, I I am a huge fan of uh, of Corn Crenshaw, uh, Tom Doak, Gil Hance. You know, Mike DeVries has been a good friend of mine for a, for a long time. I'm hoping Mike gets some great opportunities. You know, again after Cape Wickham, especially. But yeah, to to see the same three architects continually getting the new coursework, it seems. Um, is maybe a little bit unfortunate in terms of, of you know getting getting the variety that's essential to golf. Um, you know when you look back in the twenties, you know you look at a Ross course and compared to a Rainer course, compared to a McKenzie course. I mean they're completely different, different different look, different feel, different style. Um, not necessarily a different philosophy, but that's really important. I mean, that, that's really the only common characteristic that the great courses of the world share is that they're all distinctive. And I think in a lot of ways, and it's probably because when a developer hires Gill, for example, he wants a course to look like Gill designed it. And, it, and they start to take on a similar look and a similar feel. And again, that that essential variety would be uh, would be better. Where do I fit in there? Um, you know, that's again. I I hope that that more new courses start getting built, so I have some more opportunities. But in the meantime, I'll, I'll <laughs> regress again and go back to to what Rod taught me. I I'm right now. I just try to put my head down and do the best that I can on every job that I do. And um, I think then you let the cards fall where they're where 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 they may and where they're supposed to, and it's just gonna. If I keep doing good work, I think it's just gonna work itself out one way or the other. I don't worry about it too much. Well, that's a healthy perspective. I think one of the differences between your outlook and mine is is you you have seem to have a pretty positive outlook, and I'm a, I'm a little bit more dour because because one of the things I worry about is that. You know we're at, we're at this place where we're on the verge of squandering like almost a almost a generation of some of the greatest golf design talent we've ever seen. You know it happened during the depression we lost every everything, but right now there's so many talented people like yourself. There's so much talent and young talent in the game, and just and so few opportunities, and it's just it's crushing. And that's right. why every time I see a commission go to one of these old name brand firms many of whom are great people and I know, but it, it's just another step back for the entire industry. There's no p- possibility of moving forward or cultivating new talent or exploring these great ideas that have been rediscovered and developed by Doak and Core and Hanson and other people. Right. How are we, we got to get it moving forward somehow. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, you know, I appreciate that. And, and that, that is a great thought, but you know, again, I mean, all I can do is, 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 put my head down and do good work and hopefully someone shows up at town and country club again where i am right now Mm -hmm. and says holy cow you know who who did all this cool work and uh and someone says jeff minge and this guy who asked that question says well i got a property just north of minneapolis here boy i'm gonna call him and uh and have him take a look at this we were thinking about building the course so i really just yeah try to just keep it in perspective and think if i keep doing good work and the right person's eventually going to see it and that's how those things tend to work out not much you can't really push for it if you know what i mean no there's i know we're at the mercy of of developers and and the money and visionaries and opportunity and you're right you can't but it's just 
there's just a lot of talent in the game right now that I don't I, squandered is a horrible word. I really don't mean it like that, but it's, it's not doing them justice to just do restorations over and over and over again. You know, there's, there's an opportunity to really have amazing golf courses built new golf right. courses or no conversions. So we always mention Pete Dye. He always comes up. Let's say, uh, Herb Kohler, speaking of developer comes to you and says, Jeff, I want you to develop my next course and it's right next to the straights course here, but it's, you know, there's nothing here, but I'm going to give you a huge budget and you can do whatever you want with it. Just like Pete did with a straights course. Does mm-hmm. something like that excite you to be able to, I mean, I think your natural, you know, intent or predilection would be to work with a natural, a beautiful natural site. But does that concept of really creating something from scratch, how, how to what level does that, would that get your juices flowing? <laughs> I, for me, I think it would get my juices flowing just as as uh, much as a you know a dune site next to the ocean would. Um, I think you know there there's different challenges involved uh, between those two different types of projects, but um, but I think going from scratch would be would be really fun, really fun. Along that same line, when you close your eyes and think. It- is there a golf course that you see in your head or, or, or dream about or, or think about and you can just see it all out there? And does that golf course already exist? Oh, the, boy, you got some good questions, Derek. Um, <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for, for the longest time, and I, you've probably seen Paul Daly's books, uh, yeah. Golf Architecture, a Worldwide Perspective. I, mm-hmm. I, I wrote an essay, and in, in, I can't remember which volume it is. But, um, I think I know what you're going to say. Garden City. Yep. <laughs> I just read it this morning. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. yeah, I haven't read it in a while. I should reread it. But um, yeah, Garden, Garden City, the first time I visited, which is so long time ago now, it has always seemed to me to be my dream course. There's something about it's simplicity that makes it complex <laughs> and it's got this rustic beauty to it. I mean, it, there's some, there's nothing at Garden City that seems to imply to me that someone tried too hard to build it and make it interesting and fun to play and beautiful to look at and, and distinctive. It's just... That would be my dream course, I think. And I, it's strange, you know, you'd think it'd be Cypress Point or, you know, uh, Pacific Dunes or somewhere in a more beautiful setting than Garden City, New York. But that place just fascinates me and it has for two decades, you know. Um, I'd, yeah. I'd love to try to duplicate that. So I, I don't think anybody would get it. I think if I built Garden City today, it's kind of like the the joke so many architects use you know if you built the old course at st andrews today you'd never get a job again even though everyone declares it to be maybe the best course in the world i think garden city would be the same i think if you built a garden city you'd have to be doing a lot of educating in terms of what the what the point was but um but it's it's a fascinating place wouldn't it be trippy if you got the Herb Kohler job and he gave you an unlimited budget and then you created like the Garden City model? It was so so well, understated. I, and, you know. I think it'd be an awesome compliment to the Straits course because the Straits course is so overwhelming and, and, and so gigantic. I think if you did a if you did a Garden City type thing next door, it'd be a, it'd be a great compliment in terms of variety. 
it would be interesting to see how they chopped up play, you know, what people chose to play between the two <laughs> over a 10-year period. Yeah, maybe kind of exactly. lopsided. <laughs> right. What's the What's the greatest modern course that you've seen, one that really fits your personal tastes? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, boy, that is another good one. <laughs> um, you know, I... It's probably because um, I'm, I'm a bit biased about it, but there really is something about Rod's Blackhawk Golf Club. You know, the first project I worked worked on with him mm. that I think is it's almost a perfect golf course in terms of a place to be a, a member at. Um, you know, it's walkability, variety of holes, beautiful setting. Um, I think I think Rod just did a fantastic job at Blackhawk, and as we talked about earlier, you know, not enough people know about it. But it, it's it's a great place. I I'd have to put some more thought into it, but I, that's the one that jumps immediately into my head as uh, as as a favorite modern modern course. Yeah, I like that you kept it in Canada too. Way to go! You're, <laughs> everybody's <laughs> going to support you for that. What? What did you do on that job? Did you have anything uh, in particular that you can look back on and say, other than clearing rocks or something? I don't know, but like, yeah. did you have a? Uh, you have moments that you can go back there and say, yeah, I remember we did that. Yeah, you know, I mean, the biggest thing for me was the learning experience. You know, we took three summers to build it, and uh, in the early stages, it was a lot of learning about moving dirt. Um, and getting opportunities to, to run bulldozer, you know, with Rod showing me what to do, how to do it. The next year, we started building a lot of bunkers. And what was really cool was um, Dave Axlin and James Duncan, who are mm. core Crenshaw guys. Yeah. They both came up on the job and helped with bunkers. So the second year, you know, I really learned how to, how to build bunkers from a couple guys that have that have done some some great bunker work over the years and then you know in the third year we got into the finish work and, you know and, and i mean i i still think rod's one of the greatest uh uh designers and builders of, of greens that's ever lived um he really he really is i mean if you study the greens at his best courses they're uh, you know, really, really well done and as good as anything. And I know how much Rod likes Perry Maxwell. I think he could probably, a lot of his greens could could compete in the uh, the best of Perry Maxwell uh, category. But, you know, in the third year doing the finish work, I mean, it was, it was just a great, great education, that project, because I just learned through each of the three most important stages um, you know, from some of the some of the best guys in the business. You know, particularly Rod and, and Dave's really been a, Dave Axon's really been a mentor to me over the years too. Um, he worked on Cabot with us too, and was was responsible for a lot of what happened there as well. Yeah, that must have been a great a great way to learn the business. You know, you go there one year and you learn one phase of it. Come back the next year. It's you, you must have felt like going back each year. You were just learning more and more. You could take the off season to kind of study and rest up, and you come back like you're you're a year older, a little more experienced. You ready for the next phase? Is that what it felt like? Kind of just moving. You know, this- I, I don't. I don't think I realized it at the time. You know, I just I I knew I was learning, and I knew that we were doing something pretty cool on that job. But um, in retrospect, yeah, it's exact. It's exactly the, the way you described is exactly the way I feel uh, about it now. I mean, it it couldn't have been it couldn't have been better. And at and at the same time too, I I um, uh, got to be real friendly with Dwayne Sharp, who was hired uh, during the construction to be this this 
growing superintendent and then the superintendent. So then we started, you know, talking about grassing and, and, and uh, you know, fescue areas and bent grass and what we're going to do on the fairways. And so I, I got that whole agronomic input, you know, hey, that, that's too steep. How, how are we going to maintain that, you know? And that, that's a huge thing in architecture too that I've, I've learned the hard way over the years. You know, you really got to realize what's maintainable and, and what's practical to, to build and, and in, again, varying situations. So Dwayne was a, a big input influence on me. Right. Uh, in terms of greenkeeping, what's the best place in Canada or the United States to watch a ball game? Oh, Fenway for sure. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I I went to Fenway for the first time last summer, and I've been to my fair, fair share of parks, as you've probably seen. And uh, Fenway blew my mind. You know, it's it's like it's like a Garden City experience. Okay. Did you have like high expectations before you went there, and they were met, or did you just try to keep an open mind? I had high expectations, and they were exceeded. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, good when I, that happens. It doesn't oh, happen often. I, I also last year went to a playoff game at Dodger Stadium, and um, it's a completely different experience than Fenway. But I was pretty impressed with Dodger Stadium too. Yeah, that's in, that's an interesting uh, juxtaposition. You know, in, in golf, anything that was you know built in the late fifties or early sixties is usually you know probably not that great and derided. But Chavez Ravine, structural architecture from that from there was never really a, a dark period, was there? I mean, it was pretty. There was something, maybe the seventies, but there's something almost always developing in that art form that was interesting and contemporary and relevant. And you look back now, and it still kind of feels there's something to learn from it. Chavez Ravine from that period is kind of represents that. Absolutely, it's it's funny actually to think that Dodger Stadium is now the third oldest park in the major league. I know, Fenway, Wrigley, and then uh, yeah. and then Chavez Ravine, yeah. and they're nothing but, yeah. like as you said. Nothing alike, nothing yeah. alike. But but again, it's just like golf, right? The the importance of having a variety of golf courses, and you know, this makes me think about recently hearing about I who was it? Um, I think it was Brian Silva restored um, uh, Dick Wilson's course at Meadowbrook, mm-hmm. I think, on yeah. Long Island. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, I th- I've always thought about you know we we've we've seen the restoration of Ross courses and Tillinghouse courses and McKenzie courses. Thompson courses in Canada, you know, I, I thought, you know, with variety being so important, when are we going to see the restoration of a Robert Trent Jones course and a Dick Wilson course? And I, as you said earlier, a George Cobb course. I mean, I still think there's value in, in, in that architecture just to maintain, and we don't want every course to be Sand Hills. You know, we right. want to go, we want to play Sand Hills and then we want to go play Meadowbrook. So I think there is an era there that we need to maybe delve into. Maybe we've been a little bit too focused on the pre-World War II stuff. You know, I'd, I probably haven't taken a good enough look at, at Dick Wilson's body of work and his best stuff or RTJ. You know, we always like to throw him under the bus with regard to certain things. But, you know, there's got to be some really good stuff out there that I haven't seen and, uh, no, I think so, because especially with Robert Trent Jones is, you know, 
we kind of associate him. I mean, he had such a long career. We associate him with a lot of the bad stuff that was going on in the, you know, the development era of the seventies and eighties and nineties. But you know, he wasn't, he kind of was starting to tail off by then his courses from the fifties and sixties usually are not affiliated with any kind of residential development. So they're usually on core properties with some interesting land movement. And those, that was back when his ideas were still kind of fresh from, you know, 1946 at Peachtree up, up through 1960 or into the 60s some it's pretty some pretty big ideas and some interesting properties that he had so i agree with you i think that'd yep. be interesting to re-examine some of those and see if they're worthy or look at look at them and see well what can what can we take out of these golf courses what Absolutely. is valuable i mean i've seen some pictures of oakland hills um during the 51 open uh recently and the bunker work there looks like gil hans and jim wagner did it <laughs> and the bunkers look fantastic, you know, much better than they do now. Um, so yeah, I don't. I'm not even sure Oakland Hills South is representative of of what he he did at the time. And you know, these days in our generation, you know, we just give him a bad rap for blowing up Donald Ross's original course. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's there's a bit more complexity to it that we probably haven't looked into or, or discussed enough. That's refreshing to hear you say that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's not a viewpoint that's often uh, put yeah. forth in, in the get, small older. architecture world. Um, you, you're a music fan, so uh, as we before we leave, uh, give us one band that you're really excited about right now, or a couple bands that you know you'd go out of your way to see. Maybe maybe even a band that people aren't really familiar with. Um, I'll throw Gojira at you. G O J I R A. Okay, you got uh, me on that one. Yeah, they're a band from France. Um, heavy, you know. They would probably be considered not necessarily metal, but they're they're more of an experiment. I think. Are you familiar with Rush at all? Speaking Dude. of Canada again, <laughs> <laughs> don't get me started. Caressa Steel all the way. I kind of think I, I kind of think of Gojira as as uh, they're kind of like a, a heavier version of Rush. It's almost like prog metal. <laughs> if that makes any sense yeah um very interesting to listen to especially if you you got a musical ear and you can you know hear the bass playing and or pay attention to the drums or pay attention to what the guitars are doing i like the intricacy of their their songwriting and they they're they're quite they're quite unique different you know i think that's just like in golf course architecture i mean all the great bands are are them no one else sounds like them you know no one else is like them just mm-hmm. like the best golf courses i'd, I'd throw gojira in that category so when you're listening to somebody like gojira and it's a little heavier and faster does that influence like what you're doing on the machine does your does your features work come out a little differently than it is if you're listening to the smiths that's a good question that's a good question too um I don't know if I can answer that one. I, I wish someone else could take a look at the stuff and know what I was listening to and, and answer that for Yeah, me. you should start cataloging it on a, a notepad or something, you know, 14th yeah. green, listening to Gojira. Well, you know, I do have I do have a memory for that stuff. I do I do remember what I was into or what I was listening to on different projects or even even building different greens or bunkers and things. It's it's funny. Oh, that's cool. So like years later, you'd be playing a one of your golf courses. You were visiting the site and you you see a, a bunker or a, a slope on a green and you think of music. You know, you yeah, think of a song. Yeah. I've done it <laughs> many awesome. times. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I'm going to let you get back to work. I appreciate letting me steal some of your time. That was that was fun talking to you. Yeah, no, thanks, Derek. I appreciate your interest. Yeah, I hope we can uh, cross paths someday in, in person. I look forward to it. All right, for Jeff. Sure. 
All right, just a quick reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast, and I hope that you are, please subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. You can also go to iTunes and leave a star review. You can leave comments there. You can also go to feedtheball.com and leave some comments or feedback on that website. You can always find me on Instagram and Twitter, at feedtheball. Jeff has a really good Instagram and Twitter feed as well. He's a good follow. Check him out there and see what he's doing both on and off the golf course. I thought that was a good, fun conversation. Look, anyone who can flow from helmet to the Smiths to Rush is good by me. Jeff gets a pass in just about everything because of that. You know, if this was another era or a parallel universe, Jeff would be working his way right up the architectural ladder and be in a position right now to design a new course and kind of get his own fresh thoughts on the ground. Um, that's just not the way the industry works anymore, which is too bad because Jeff, along with a lot of other of his peers who are kind of in that under 50, 30-year-old, 40-year-old age group, has so much potential. There's so, so much that could be done out there with golf. Uh, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know, I kind of feel that we're, we're sort of treading water right now. So much great work has been done over the last 20 years and continues to be done in small measures, but we're a little bit stagnant uh, as far as design ideas and kind of moving the art forward. With Jeff's knowledge and his background and his experience now, his collaboration with Rod Whitman and just the places he's been and, and the ideas that he has, he's one of the guys that could really, I think, take golf architecture into the direction that it's going to go in the future. If only there were projects for him and, and new opportunities, whether a, a brand new course, a new development, a resort course, or a conversion of an old course. Um, hopefully that opportunity is still out there. Jeff's going to keep working hard. Like he said, he's not, he doesn't seem too worried about it. He's going to put his head down and do the work. And hopefully he does get a shot coming up soon. But I want to thank Jeff for coming on the show, for being a cool guy, for hanging out and talking to me for a little while. Hope you all enjoyed that. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Until that time, everybody take care.